Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. The Equifax hack has been dominating the news, and now people are all concerned about high-tech uh, hacking and, you know, how can you protect your identity in the 21st century and, and, and a lot of these things that most people can't even understand how these happen. And we get it. We get it, folks. But while you are focused on high-tech fraud, there is a low-tech fraud that you are probably not focused on, but you should be focused on. Right, Stephen Grosser? That is correct. And it's very important, too, in the U.S. because Americans love their checks. Americans love their checks. Chances are most of you out there have written a check. Uh, if you're like me, you write more than one check a month. In fact, I think uh, the U.S. is the top writer of checks in the world, and I think it's about 38 a year and what on is, average. Wh- what is person. actually shocking, and we, you're going you're gonna to learn this listening to this podcast, folks, uh, is how easy it is to commit fraud with checks. Our deputy editor, Henry Williams, recently had – uh, what I have to say, he told me this story. I still find it unbelievable that he did this. Henry, uh, tell us what you did and tell us how it led you to our special guest, one of the most famous fraudsters of all time, Frank Abagnale Jr., who will join us in just a second. So, like me, you've probably lost your checkbook at some point or left it behind or not had it with you when you needed it. Um, I had to pay my doctor through a check, he didn't take credit cards. So what am I going to do? I don't have my checkbook with me. So I went on my computer. I made something that looked like a check. I put my account number at the bottom. It looked it looked great. Printed it out, signed it, gave it to the doctor. The money you, you did that at the doctor's office? No, I did no, it. I did, did it. Did it. At, you know, right. at, at home. Yeah, and um, just printed it out. Regular paper, not even sort of check paper. It was just a piece of you know blank letter paper. Handed it to the doctor on my next visit. The money went out of my account. And it was done. I just made it myself. Did, did you cut it out or did you hand them the full eight and a half by 11? I Googled how big a check should look like yeah. and sized it to that and then cut it out with a pair of scissors. Wow. That's it. That's it. And it worked. So, so essentially you, you committed fraud. Well, that, or, no. or did you? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess did it's, you. It's, did you? It's my money. It's my account. The, the, the saying goes that you can write a check on anything. So I'm testing that theory. Yeah. So that led me down the line of... Well, isn't this an easy way of committing fraud? Yeah, at, at what point did you start to think to yourself, wait a second, that that didn't seem normal? Well, right. I mean, I could. when you pay somebody with a check, it has all their details on it. Why couldn't I just copy somebody else's check mm-hmm. and make them pay for it instead? So, right. that, so that led me down the line to think about who, who I could torture about this. So you um, went to the expert. Yeah, I went to the expert. Yeah. And his, his answers were really... Just mind blowing. And who who is that expert? Well, that that expert is Frank Abagnale Jr. Uh, the name may or may not ring a bell. If it doesn't, uh, you've probably seen the movie Catch Me If You Can, which was a fictional not even fictionalized. It was it was a, a dramatization of his young life. I enjoy it. It was a very good movie. Also, Leonardo DiCaprio. I have to ask Frank at this point, how, how does it like being played by Leonardo DiCaprio uh, on, the, on the big screen? Because I don't think I'm ever going to achieve that uh, claim to fame. I thought he did an amazing job. I mean, I'm not a real moviegoer, so I had to go see uh, Street Gangs of New York when I heard that he was going to play me in the movie. Oh, yeah. 
And um, I was really a little surprised because, you know, at the time he was 27, 28 years old, and that movie had long hair, hair and a beard. And I thought to myself, no one's going to believe this person <laughs> at 16 or 17 yeah. years old. So it was just amazing how he was able to play the role of a teenage boy, look like the teenage boy, and age through the teenage cycle. And he's just a great character actor, and he did a, a fabulous job. Did, did you have somebody else in mind for playing you before you heard about Leonardo? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> um, Frank, can you just give us a little background on, on for the people who haven't seen the movie or uh, don't know you, you know your history about you, you know the sort of check fraud that you you sort of you know, were committing back I guess it was in the late sixties and uh, to nineteen seventy yeah and that's how and that's how uh, technology has changed everything back when I forged checks fifty years ago um, you basically needed a Heidelberg printing press. That press cost about a million dollars, so Steven Spielberg went out and found one. Wow. He remembered that I had written about having to build scaffolding on the side of the press so that I could eliminate the other two operators of the press and operate it by myself. I was a teenage boy, so I was able to run the length of the press. But you, the, back then, there were color separations, there were negatives, there were plates, there were typesetting, there were chemicals you had to deal with. So a lot went into creating a a check. Today, 50 years forward, you open up your laptop, you go to a check diagram, and up comes a very good-looking secure check blank on your screen. You go to a, a website of, say, a, a major Fortune 500 company. You capture their corporate logo in color. You put it up in the left-hand corner of the check with their corporate address. You put a step-and-repeat background with their company's name repeated over and over in the background. And then you basically uh, go simply, because we live in a too-much-information world, you call your victim. So when the victim answers, you ask them for their accounts receivable department. When they come on, you say that you're getting ready to pay them a, an invoice, and you need their wiring instructions. So they immediately tell you where they bank, on what street, what city, account number, routing number. You take that information, you capture the bank's logo, you put it on the check, you put the micker line down below with the account information they gave you. You call back to the company and ask for a copy of their annual report. They mail it out to you, and on page three is a signature of the chairman of the board, the CEO, the CFO, the treasurer, the controller. It's black ink on white paper, camera ready art. You scan it, you digitize it, you put it on the check. And in 15, 20 minutes, you're looking at a beautiful four-color check on your screen. You go down to Office Depot, you buy a ream of check paper with security features in it and a watermark, eight and a half by 11. You put it in your inkjet printer, and you start printing out uh, checks. I mean, technology has made it so much easier to do. We've gone from the color copier to scanners to now the ability just through using graphic art to be able to create uh, a check today, something that would have been unheard of back when I did it 50 years ago. And basically what Henry went through is, is really even simpler than that. We have every day thousands of cases of what's called account takeover. So you write me a check for $9.00. I go online to checksinthemail.com. Up comes all these thousands of different style checks I can select, personal checks. I find the one that looks closest to yours, and I order those checks, 200 of them, with my name on them, but your account number. Then every check I write gets debited against your account, and I'm going to at least get away with it until you reconcile. For some people, that's every day. Some people, 30 days. Some people, never. Um, so it's very, very simple uh, to do today, and that's why it still remains a very, very popular crime. About $20 billion a year in forged checks 
are cast in the United States. You know, I have to say, I, I think I have about 14 questions after <laughs> that. Uh, uh, God, I don't even know which one. The first, well, uh, well, no, go. Oh, I don't know. The first one is, I, I have to say, where'd you get a million dollars to buy a printing press? I didn't. As you see in the movie, <laughs> people always say I got a lot more from the book than the movie. It was a girl that I met in uh, a little town called Montpellier in France, and her father owned a small printing company. He had those printing equipment. He was going on vacation, and I basically rented his office space from him. Uh, he didn't know that I was going to forge wow. checks there, but basically that's how I got access. I would have never been able to purchase uh, such a machine. Right, right. And one question I have for you is, you know, the hack at Equifax and the hack at other financial companies and just companies in general, like, you know, can be like Target and things like that, draw a lot of attention. Consumers, are, I think, are sort of feel like they're very exposed on technology front. But how much is writing checks and if you write checks, how much are you exposed to, you know, fraud in your bank accounts being, you know, being, your bank accounts being drained? Well, the whole catch is, and always been the catch, is the federal law says you have 30 days from receipt of your bank statement to notify the bank of any discrepancy in your checking account. So as long as within 30 days I go back to my bank and say, hey, there's a check in here that's a forged check or someone made up or I didn't sign it or somebody chemically washed it and altered it, uh, the bank is liable for that. But most people, unfortunately, don't reconcile. So what happens is four or five months later, they realize that these forged checks are in their account because they're overdrawn, and they go back to the bank, and the bank says, I have no liabilities for that. You had needed to notify me within the 30 days prescribed by law. So this is where people take a loss. And a lot of times today, people are writing checks off their money market account, their wealth management account, their private banking account, their Merrill Lynch mutual fund account, where they may have 200000 150000 dollars in that account, and they're going into a store and writing a $9 check off that account. So some criminal who sees money market or wealth management account, private banking account, they know there's a lot of money in that account. You have to have at least $20,000 in them to even maintain them. Hmm. So you expose yourself to having somebody forge that check. You always have to remember that the criminal who forges a check and cashes a check, he really doesn't care who's stuck with the the loss. He didn't care if the bank stuck with it, the grocery store got stuck with it, the check casher got stuck with it. All he cares is that he cashed a check and he, he or she got the money. All right. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, we are going to talk more about this, uh, the danger of writing checks. We are talking to Henry Williams, Wall Street Journal deputy editor, and Frank Abagnale, Jr. You are listening to Money Beat from The Wall Street Journal. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. For more insights, enable the Wall Street Journal skill on any device with Amazon Alexa. Get all of our podcasts, as well as the latest news and market updates. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Welcome back to Money Beat. Paul and Stephen here in the studio with Wall Street Journal Deputy Editor Henry Williams and Frank Abagnale Jr. on the phone with us talking about check fraud and how surprisingly, almost shockingly easy it is to do. 
And and Frank, I think in the last segment you had mentioned briefly, you you had, you, you had said we at one point, and I think people should understand that uh, in the long years after you got caught and served your time, you started working with the FBI. Yes, I've been doing that for 41 years now. Yeah. And I teach at the FBI Academy. And, you know, I always, one of the things uh, when I started teaching there 40 years ago, I thought I would someday come to the point where I wouldn't be talking about checks. The checks will have gone away and left our society. I never dreamed that they'd still be here. But I've come to the conclusion that they're going to be here for a long time. So people always ask me when we'll see the paperless society, and my response is when you see the paperless toilet. Uh, no time soon. So I think we're going to be dealing checks long after I'm gone. They'll still be around. Frank, Frank is, there, is there anything I can do with my own account to stop checks, you know, to freeze it, to stop checks being issued? I, I, do, I mean, I do everything through Venmo. I do everything online. Why, why should my account be open to checks? Yeah, see, I I live on a very simple philosophy that works perfectly, and that is I always use the safest form of payment that actually exists on the face of the earth, and that is a credit card. Credit card, not a credit debit, not a debit, a credit card, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover Card. Every day of my life, I literally spend their money. My money sits in a money market account. It's earning interest. Nobody knows where the money is. It's not exposed to anybody. I go to the dry cleaner. I give them my credit card. I go to the grocery store. I give them my credit card. I travel every day. I buy my ticket. I get on the plane. I go overseas. I get money out of the ATM. I use my credit card. Now, I will do everything in my power to make sure nobody gets my number. But if they do, and tomorrow they charge $1 million on my credit card, by federal law, I have no liability, zero liability. When you use a debit card, every time you take it out of your pocket, you're exposing the money in your account. So in all of these breaches we had with Target, Home Depot, uh, every one of those, the people who had used a credit card said, well, no, they just canceled my card, and two days later they sent me a new card, and I never heard anything else. Well, and the other person said, no, I had a debit card. It took me like two months to get $3,000 back in my checking account because they said they were investigating it. And when you use a debit card, you do nothing for your credit. So young people don't build any credit. They don't build any credit score. When you use a credit card and you pay the bill or part of the bill, what's ever due, uh, you build credit for yourself. So I've always found the safest way is to simply, if someone's going to steal my money, let them steal my, the credit card company's money, not my money. And so I just simply use a credit card. Now, when I have to write a check for a certain reason, that I make sure that I know who I'm writing the check to, like an insurance company or my mortgage. The other problem you have with writing checks, if I go to Walgreens tomorrow and write a $9 check, uh, I have to give the clerk the check. On the check is my name and address and phone number, my bank's name and address, my account number at that bank, my routing number into that account. That's my wiring instructions my signature on the signature card that's at the bank. And then the clerk has written on the face of the check my driver's license number and my date of birth. I don't get the check back. We live in truncation. I, I only get an image of the check. The check goes back to the vendor and the, the company, and they'll keep it for 60, 65 days, and they'll eventually destroy it. But anyone who would see the face of that check from the clerk to anyone up the line obviously could just draft on my bank account, or they could go order checks with my account number on it. It is so simple to do, and that's why we've seen so many gangs now that have actually gone a little bit switching away from selling drugs and pushing drugs to forging and counterfeiting and altering checks because there's obviously a lot more money in it, and it's a lot safer to do. Wow. How, how prevalent is check fraud? It's very prevalent because still today, there, as you said, there are about 38 billion checks 
Britain every year. We assort checks on high-speed IBM Unisys assorters. So when your checks go to the clearinghouse to be processed, they're going down a machine at 2,400 items a minute. That's 40 checks a second. No human being sees that check. That's right. why when you write a check and you forget to sign it, it still clears the bank. So it's kind of irrelevant what the checks look like in the case of Henry's check. No one's going to see that check. Now, what banks do do is they have a certain dollar amount of where they refer to as site review, where they require the check be pulled and they look at the physical check. But that could be $20,000, $10,000, $25,000. So the criminal knows if I stay under those thresholds, no one's even going to look at the check. So whether I alter it or I counterfeit it, uh, no one's going to see it till after the fact. And again, all I'm interested in is getting my money. In the end, I know someone's going to find out it's a forged check and someone's going to be a victim, but I don't really care about that as a criminal. I only care to get, I'm going to get my money. I have a question. Why do you think, uh, you, you, you saw the use of checks decline, starting to decline in the 90s, but it's sort of the, the, the rate of decline has slowed recently. Why, in, in, at least in this country, why is, you know, checks remain so popular in the United States? And the, I guess the other question, too, are the people that use checks particularly, you know, sort of exposed to fraud? Um, I don't know. You know, every form of payment has some risk associated with it except a credit card based on the way the laws are written. So every form of payment has some, some risk associated with it. We've seen a 10% decrease in the use of personal checks over the last 10 years, but only a 2% decrease in the uh, business check side. So there are still many companies who uh, write checks. For example, I live in South Carolina. Our tax revenue office, because they were hacked into and 3.8 million tax returns were stolen a couple of years ago, they've started to slow down a lot of the way they make payments. So they now have gone back to sending you a check uh, when you have a refund. And the reason they say is that they know they have to mail it to you. They know that uh, they can stop payment on it. They know that they can track it versus me putting money on a green dot card at Walmart and they transferring it to that card. So I think it, it, there is always a perp there always is a little bit of the float and there's always the idea that uh, companies are just more comfortable uh, writing checks in many cases. So that's why I say I don't think we're going to see, and we're not the only country, Australia, many other countries still write a lot of checks, but I, I think we're going to see checks for quite a while yet. So, And there are so many ways to ch alter checks. And, you know, the majority of all the checks written today by either whether a small flower shop or by the Wall Street Journal's accounts payable department are going to be laser printed. So in the old mm -hmm. days, we matrix printed right. checks, and that was done by an impact printer. So you had a ribbon with ink in it, and the ribbon was struck by a key, and the ink dispersed into the fibers of the paper. The only way you could alter that check is you had to really find a good forger, a very skilled one. And he used bleaches, solvents, ink eradicators, acetones, hydrochlorides, and he would take a good eight hours a letter. So it would take him two weeks just to change the payee of the company's check, who the check was going to. Today we use laser printers, which are non-impact printers, and they basically lay toner down on the surface of the paper. So what criminals do today, they can either scrape it off, but that's a little messy sometimes, you have to be very careful, or they just use scotch tape. They use scotch magic brand scotch tape, they put it over whatever they want to alter on the check, they rub it down, then they pull it back, and the toner adheres to the tape. So when it comes off, it takes only the toner, not the wow. paper, and they put in a new amount. So. It's just gotten a lot easier. You know, you would always think that it would get more difficult to do, but through technology and the way we do things, it gets only easier uh, to do. 
One question. This this is sort of I think might be up Paul's alley too, and very interesting. Cause Paul loves Bitcoin. I was wondering what your thoughts are. Uh, in, I love it as a story. I don't yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but ba- basically, clear. like you know, how exposed are you in the sort of to, with Bitcoin to fraud um, and things like that? I hope you'll quote me in a, a couple of years from now. But Bitcoin is probably the biggest scam, the biggest fraud ever perpetrated. Wow. Um, there is so much risk associated with Bitcoin that there is nowhere even uh, to start. And I know that a couple of years ago, Atlantic Magazine, uh, where they ever, always have a quote from someone famous in the back of their magazine, they called me and said, we'd like to put a quote in this month's magazine from you, but this is the question. What do you think of Bitcoin? And my response was just that. And I, I kind of found amused that the people that ran Bitcoin uh, wrote back in the, the next month's magazine and put a comment in there saying, well, you know, Frank having now uh, is a little old and he doesn't really understand. <laughs> well, I'm not that old. I've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> so it is not, it's not something I would ever do. And plus, we make it, again, much easier for criminals to disperse money and use money. So we've just given them another tool through the force of, source of using Bitcoins. Um, Frank, just going back to the, the sort of the Equifax hack, do you think the, the, the information that was leaked, you know, the names, the addresses, the social security numbers are going to make fraud easier, or especially when it comes to checks? And- yeah, this is a huge, huge problem because when we have a Home Depot or a, or a Target, someone is hacked and they have stolen credit card numbers and debit card numbers, they have a very short shelf life. You have to move very quickly to use that data. When I steal your name, your social security number, and your date of birth, you can't change your name. You can't change your social security number, and you can't change your date of birth. So what typically happens is they take that type of data and warehouse it for two to five years, and then eventually they will resell that data off on the black market or the dark web, but little by little. So when they say to me that I'm going to give you one year of credit monitoring service for free, that's worthless. Nothing's going to happen in a year. First of all, you'd have to be a pretty stupid criminal to say, well, they just told they're going to give everybody credit monitoring for a year, so I'm not going to do anything with this data for at least a year. And so we find that they always end up warehousing that data. Now, I've, I've been involved in a lot of these uh, breaches all the way back to TJ Maxx. And excuse me, what I have found is that every breach is caused because somebody in that company did something they weren't supposed to do, or somebody in that company failed to do something they were supposed to do. Hackers do not cause breaches. People do. So what happens is, in the case, I believe, of of Equifax, they did not have the proper technology in place to protect that data. We have the ability. We have the technology. But if you don't use it, it's worthless. So whether they didn't want to spend the money or they didn't think they had the risk, uh, they didn't take the necessary precautions to protect the data that was entrusted uh, to them. And that's how these breaches occur. When you talk to the most best hackers in the world, they'll say to you, look, I can't get into this bank. They spend a half a billion dollars a year on technology to keep me out of the bank. But they employ 200,000 people. They're in South Africa. They're all over the world. All I have to do is wait for one of those people to make a a mistake and do something that they weren't supposed to do, and that opens the door for me uh, to get in. So in the case of 
of Equifax, I think it's a huge problem because they have your driver's license numbers, they have credit card numbers. And, you know, people look at stealing data like from a credit bureau and think, oh, someone's going to get credit in my name. They're going to use my credit to get a car, get a mortgage. I worry about that, but I also worry about when this gets into the wrong hands that it's, you're able to manipulate that credit where I can ruin your credit. If you're a politician or you're somebody I'm dealing with that I want to just ruin your credit, I can ruin it, I can manipulate it, or I can take someone who has horrible credit and has bankruptcies and judgments and tax liens and fix their credit because then I'm controlling that that data. So I think it's going to open the door to a lot of problems. It's, 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 it's very unfortunate it should have never happened. And I will tell you that, like in every breach, whatever number they said, 135 million pieces of uh, individual data stolen, uh, you can always take that and at least double that number. It's going to be a lot more. That's just the initial number that they're, they're putting out. Wow. Uh, Frank, before we let you go, I have to ask you one question. I'm sure you've been asked it a million times over the years, but we have you on the phone. I have to ask it. Why did you do it? Well, you know, I was a young kid who uh, basically at the age of 16, my parents were getting a divorce and a, and a family court judge told me in court I had to choose which parent I wanted to live with. And at 16, I didn't, having loved both my parents, I didn't think that was something I could answer. So I ran out of the courtroom and ran away. And there were a lot of runaways back in the 1960s, but unfortunately a lot of them got into Haight-Ashbury, the hippie scene, the drug scene. Mm. And I ended up on the streets in New York and 16 years old, and I realized that I had to become very creative in order to survive or I wasn't going to make it. So I realized no one was going to deal with a 16-year-old, so the first thing I did was alter my driver's license, which back then in New York was just an IBM card with no photo, and I changed my date of birth to make myself 10 years older, and I looked older, so I was able to get by with that. And one thing led to another. You start doing those things, and then you get away with one thing, and then you go get it. You do something else, you get away with another thing. And, and being an adolescent, I had no fear of being caught. I had, I had no concern of consequences. I just did it. And I think really that's why uh, the, my success, it wasn't that I was brilliant or that I was a genius. It was simply that I was so young. I, I didn't give it a second thought that I could do it. I didn't stand out in front of a bank with a $500 check and say to myself, here's the plan. I'm going to go in and do this. If they say this, I'll do this. I just went in and did it. I think if I'd have been a little older, like 25 or so, I would have rationalized all that and said, oh, you'll never get away with it. Don't try it. It can't be done. I think the adolescence in me has allowed me, is what allowed me to get away with it. But I was not a fool. I always knew I would get caught. The law sometimes sleeps, but they never die. And eventually they caught me, and I, I served my time in prison and paid my debt. But um, that's how it started, and that's where it brought me. But we live in a great country, an amazing country, where you can make mistakes, pay your debt, turn your life around, and do something very positive for your life. So I, I owe my country 800 times more than I could repay it for those opportunities it's given me. Was there an element of it that was... Uh, addicting, that was fun, that was interesting. I mean, it's funny because you watch that movie, and the movies, you know, you're committing crimes, but it's it's a movie, and it seems kind of almost alluring. I mean, was there an like? Did you get caught up? Thought, did you enjoy it? I always thought of it more as survival. It yeah. was more of just getting money to to live on and survive on. I really didn't have any intention of spending all that money, and it, then it became just a. A thing of people started chasing you, and then you started saying, "Well, how do I stay ahead of the people that are chasing me?" Um, you know, I think it's all this thing of an adolescent teenager who got caught up in all this, and knowing that it was all going to come to an end, 
but just trying to survive from day to day to see how long I could get away with it or not get caught. All right. Frank Abagnale Jr., uh, you know him, you know him, you love him, because you know what? He helps the FBI, and, and he's helping you out. And hopefully, everyone, you got something out of this. Frank, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Frank. Thank and everyone, as always, we appreciate your listening, and we will talk to you soon. Chief information officers, long regarded as technical gurus serving the business, are often today's visionaries, evangelists, and change agents for the business. Join Deloitte's Lou DiLorenzo in conversation with tech leaders who've challenged the status quo, redefining the CIO's role by transforming organizations and industries. Where technology and influence converge, new opportunities and value can emerge.